You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. If you were to go down to Seattle Town Hall uh, tomorrow evening, you could hear a lecture by a professor from Skidmore College, Sheldon Solomon. And Dr. Solomon would be talking about what he calls uh, terror management theory. Sounds like fun, right? Terror management theory. And uh, he and two uh, other scholars developed this theory about 30 years ago. It's the idea that our lives are driven by fear. That our personal lives are shaped by fear and that our culture is shaped by fear as well. This is built on the philosophy of Ernest Becker, who in 1973 wrote the book Denial of Death. Some of you have read that book. And uh, Becker writes, we build character and culture in order to shield ourselves from the devastating awareness of underlying helplessness and the terror of our own inevitable death. We build character and culture as a shield because we're so afraid. Now, when uh, Dr. Solomon and his co-authors first started talking about this about 30 years ago, they joked that renowned psychologists were storming for the exits, right? This is not exactly a pick-me-up, this death. But they're not storming for the exits anymore, actually. In the last 30 years, what's happened is they've developed a body of empirical evidence that gives support to this idea. It's quite impressive. For example, just one example, they... um, they asked judges, some judges, half the judges, to think about their own mortality before they set bail. And they found that judges who were asked to do so set a bail that was nine times higher uh, than those who were not. They also found things like when you're afraid, you tend to revert to your prejudices. You double down. And, uh, and that fear actually causes division and tribalism. And I think anyone who's watching the presidential uh, debates these days understands Uh, What's happening in light of that? Now, I'm not presenting myself in any way as an expert uh, on this, but I do know two things for sure. And one is that if worry could absorb greenhouse gases, then I could single-handedly end global warming. I know that. (laughs) And the other thing I know is that no one's ever been bolder than Jesus. And what Jesus knew was that death is not the end, but a new beginning. So today we begin a new series on boldness. It's called Bold. Communities living with the king in the kingdom of heaven today. That's our call. Our theme for the year is about great hope, great boldness from 2 Corinthians 3.12. In this series, we're going to drill down into the boldness part of that statement. We're going to be looking at Jesus' central message, which was the kingdom of God is here. That was his message. And he calls it the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news. Kingdom news. Uh, And we're going to look at this kingdom through the lens which Jesus most often time presented himself. That's through story. Through parables. We've got five parables. And they're troubling but very um, wonderful uh, parables that do bring good news into our lives if we understand them well. So our first of these stories is called the parable of the ten coins. And uh, Natalie Saldano read it to us earlier today. But I want to invite you to open up your Bible to see it. And we're going to walk through some of these parts together. Um, to do a little history with you today, I'm going to introduce you to three Roman kings. Bear, bear with me. It's a little bit geekish, but I think it'll uh, yield some fruit. So in the parable of ten coins, 
Jesus tells a story about a man who goes away to receive a kingdom and about the surprise that his slaves have the kingdom already and they have it in their pockets. All right? What do you have in your pocket? Just think for a second. You might even reach in there. They have it in their pockets. Uh, this is a man, we, the story really starts in verse 12. So you see in verse 12, uh, let's, let's find it there. So he said, a nobleman, that's Jesus, went on a, a nobleman, literally a man of noble birth, went on a, to a distant country to get royal power. Many tra- of your translations will say kingdom right there. That's the word Jesus used. He went to a distant country to get a kingdom for himself and then returned. That's the arc of the story. That's it. The rest is what happens while he's away. And, you know, so while he's away, there are these ten slaves. Each one is given one coin. It's um, translated pound, which is kind of a British way of rendering it. The actual denomination is a mina, uh, Hebrew things. Four months' wages, basically. So this nobleman gives his wealth to ten slaves. Each get the same amount. Four months' wages, coin in their pocket called a mina. Simple instruction, he says, do business with these until I come back. Do business, the imperative there, the verb there, uh, means really to put to use, put it into action. Take what I'm giving you and put it to use, put it into action. Now, at first, this story doesn't do much for my boldness. In fact, it just increases my anxiety because I know which character I would be in this story. Do you identify with anybody in this story? I totally identify with the third guy who is just called by Jesus the other <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the other. I mean, there are all these, I'm not one of the good slaves who like multiplies it and then he gets, he gets to be mayor of 10 cities or mayor of five cities. I'm the guy who says, you know, frankly, thank you for the coin, but there's really nothing else in my pocket except stuff that's not supposed to be there. And, uh, I don't, I don't have the kind of connections that a noble person would have. I'm not really royalty. I don't have much power in my life. If you knew the situation that I'm in right now, it's all I can do just to kind of manage status quo. My goal is just not to lose the coin. Okay. Where's a napkin? And, you know, he takes the nap, the coin, he folds it in a napkin and he gives it back to Jesus. It's the best he could do. And I'm thinking, I like that guy. Um, he looks a lot like me. I don't know if you, if you could relate to that too. I mean, maybe you came here today and you go, things are just, you know, up to my ears and over my head. I'm treading water just to keep from drowning. And I don't like what's in my pockets these days either. Right? I'm not the smart one in my family. Uh, I'm just a parent, stay at home, but I got five kids. Uh, I don't speak English very well, and here I am living in Seattle. Maybe I'm in a nursing home. You know, I don't have much time. I don't have much money. I don't have much social capital. And so here we are wondering what in the world does this story have to say to us? Well, I want to encourage you right at the beginning. Remember, this story is not primarily about the slave. This story is primarily about the king. So let me shift your attention back to where Jesus wants it to be, and that is on the central figure who, who is the one who's doing the action of the story. It's the king. What do we learn about the king here? Well, maybe it's just that life is not about what I can do with what's in my pockets, but what he can do with what's in my pockets. Let's go with that, and now I want to do a little history lesson with you and introduce you 
to some of these kings because there's Roman history in the background and Jesus' hearers in the first century know this history and we don't. But it helps us understand the king, which is going to help us understand Jesus. So let me start with this. Jesus' message is about good news, the good news of the kingdom. But I want to tell you that in the first century, the primary use of good news was not religious. By the way, that's the same word for gospel. It wasn't a religious word in the first century. It was actually a political word. It was a word that the Romans used to talk about their king. See, they knew that there had been a Roman man who left Rome, went to a distant country, won a decisive battle, because of that received a kingdom and then returned to Rome. Those of us who had high school English and read Shakespeare, we may remember the story of Julius Caesar. After Julius Caesar's assassination, which was uh, 44 BC, the Roman Empire breaks apart in civil war. Violence breaks out everywhere. A very tough time to live under Roman rule. Basically, four warlords who were all involved in the Roman Senate at the time uh, go head-to-head with one another, first two on two, and then the two victors, one on one. It's just the whole empire devolves into military chaos. So it's a time of, if you're just a regular person living on the ground trying to make ends meet, it's a time of recession, it's a time of famine, it's a time of disease. Most of all, it's a time of violence and instability. There you are trying to make your life. And it's, this goes on for 13 years. And yet one day there's good news. The war comes to an end. Good news. Somebody rides into Rome, and this is good news. There's been a great victory. A king has won. The war is over. Peace has come. The world is unified, and life is restored. Now, who is this king? Well, he was a man born into a noble family. His name was Octavius. It would later become Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. He's the guy that won out all these battles. He had left Rome to go to this war. Uh, and uh, he, when he would come back after a couple years of mopping up operation, there'd be a great celebration because the whole known world to them, it was, to them, it was the known world, had, had experienced personal, political, social, economic, and cultural reunification and restoration. All of the poets and the historians of that period would celebrate Augustus and his good news. Now, this ought to change how we think about about Jesus. Now, if you ask your friends, uh, you know, go to a Super Bowl party, or, well, okay, you're going to go to a Super Bowl party, aren't you? Um, There's hope. And and you're going to ask people at that party, uh, what do you think the Bible's about? Most of my friends would say, I think the Bible's about how you get to heaven. Big picture. But if you ask Jesus what he thinks the Bible is about, Jesus would say it's about how heaven gets to us. It's about how heaven comes to earth. Just think of his prayer. When he, when he taught his disciples how to pray, what did he say? He said, say, say to God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his program. That's why everywhere he goes, his message is the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's coming. Now, Randy Brothers made this comment. He may not even remember this. It's hard these days to help youth understand the connection between heaven and what they call the real world. 
Like, what difference does it make what's going on in heaven? You know, I've got real world stuff going on in my life. And that helped me. I don't think it's just youth that have trouble with that. I think I have trouble with that. I'm, I'm guessing many of us have trouble with that. But when we look at this uh, story, both that Jesus tells and that history would have presented to his audience, this has to change the way we think about Jesus because Jesus uses all of these words that are used of Augustus. He's kind of a ripoff artist. He's talking about good news. He's ta- it's taken the political slogan, Caesar is Lord becomes Jesus is Lord. They had called Augustus son of God. They called Jesus son of God. They had called Augustus savior. They called Jesus savior. He's taken all of their best stuff. And if I'm walking around there hearing these followers of Jesus use this kind of language and I'm looking over my shoulder at all the Roman soldiers, I go, hey, you guys, I would not talk that way if I were you. Because it's incredibly countercultural. It's incredibly subversive. The claim about Jesus is that he is a a person of the noblest birth, born in heaven. That he goes to the furthest of distant countries, to death itself, to receive in this great victory a kingdom, the rule and reign of God, and to give us access to that kingdom while he's away doing his mop-up operation and about to return. We're living between the victory and the celebration right now. This is the claim about Jesus. In the same way that Rome and the empire lived with the victory of Augustus between its um, beginning in the great battle and its celebration when he returns to Rome. So, this has to change everything uh, about Jesus. It means that Jesus has taken on the fear of death in a very specific and real way. And, such, and, and we have the possibility now of, to take Becker's phrase, living with a new character and living with a new culture. Okay, let's get more specific. Let me, let me get to the coins in the story because I think this is where uh, the weight of the parable is. The coins in the parable are, this is my phrase, gracious tokens of the new kingdom. I think the coins are gracious tokens of the new and coming kingdom. And there are two aspects to that. They signify responsibility and they signify opportunity. So give me a moment with each of those. First, responsibility. The lesson here is that we, you and I, are accountable to the king of heaven for what we do with what's in our pockets. These slaves in the story, they make use of the money, but they don't own the money, right? They refer to it as your coin, speaking to the king and the king speaks to the other as about my money. It's my money, he says. So likewise, the stuff that we have in this life that you and I have, we use it, but we don't really own it. What happens when you think about it as Jesus's stuff? Well, I think one helpful question I've learned is this. When I'm faced with a decision that involves my resources, whatever kind, I ask how would these resources be used in heaven? Remember the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I were making this decision in heaven, what would be my options? And what would I choose? Wow, that's pretty challenging. That's not easy. That's not easy. That sounds easy to say, but not easy to do. But, but we are responsible to think that way as stewards of this great king. But remember, good news doesn't always feel good. Let me give you a uh, a little back story about our second Roman king, Herod the Great. Herod the Great 
uh, was king in Ju- around Jerusalem, Judea, he also had to go to Rome to receive a kingdom. Um, the funny thing about Herod the Great is during the season of civil war, he backed the wrong guy. <laughs> Hinman's have a history of doing that, by the way, in our political past. He was, he, he, he backed and supported one of the guys who ended up being destroyed in battle. So it's, um, not good news, actually, for Herod the Great when Augustus Caesar wins. He goes, this is very, actually very bad news. And so all he can do is, as quickly as possible, make passage to the imperial city and throw himself literally on the mercy of the new king, Augustus, and go, oh, great, great, great King Augustus. This is such good news. Would you please remember more what a good friend I've been, not so much whose friend I've been, right? And I'd love to be your friend in that same way. Will you take me uh, into your kingdom? And so he, and Augustus, Augustus is gracious and gives Herod the Great... Uh, Judea to rule over. And Herod then has to uh, uh, realign all of his resources to serve a new king. And, and, and we're responsible to do the same. That day when you come to believe that Jesus really is Lord in your life is that day when you begin to think about, you just begin this long process of thinking about how the resources of your life can be realigned and leveraged according to his will, according to the will of heaven. So these coins, these gracious tokens of the new kingdom, call us to responsibility. What would it be like for you to, to take those things that are in your pocket that you used to think of as, oh, I don't my time, my money, my career, my friends, my family, and go, actually, they're your time, your money, your career, your friends, your family, and give them to Jesus and use them, deploy them for the service of the king. By the way, there's a promise for you when you do that. In verse 26, it says, all those who have, to, the, to all those who have, more will be given. More will be given. This is a promise that as you use what's in your pocket to his glory, your pockets will continually be refilled. There's also an opportunity. This is the second implication here. There's an opportunity, and um, I would put it this way. We are embraced by grace. These the gracious tokens of the new kingdom remind us that we are embraced by grace and empowered for exponential kingdom impact. There are three E's in there, isn't that slick? Embraced, empowered, exponential. Because there's something strange about these coins. Look again at verse 16. Uh, the first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more. Now, who does the action of that? Does he say, Lord, I made ten more? No, he says, your, your pound, your coin has made. That's surprising. That's surprising, right? It's almost like the coins are magical. They're, they're the ones performing the, the action. So this is where grace comes in. It's not about the deeds of the slaves. It's about the capacity of the gift, which is, which is, which is grace. By the way, that's the problem with the other guys. He, he didn't understand the, the economics of this king. He, he didn't understand that someone could reap what they don't sow. Because that's a principle of grace. And uh, he was just befuddled by that. But that's what the story is all about. These coins, they earn, they make. My own translation of that would be they generate. I think that's very faithful to the word that Jesus used. The coins generate. Uh, and so, in that way, there's good news here. And that's that you today... In the midst, if you're like me, you're going, I don't know if I can make it through another day, another week, or whatever. But you today have everything you need to be the person 
God is calling you to be. Right now, you have it all. What you have, principally, is God's grace. I was talking this week with a friend of mine who is like a regular person. But she's also a hero of mine. She's a mentor of mine. And I say she's a regular person because she's a mom. Uh, she's a stay-at-home mom. And she's also a professional mom. She works and she cares for the kids. And uh, she has two adolescents, one of whom has severe, severe, severe autism. And she's great with them. Um, but what's so impressive is that would just put me under the pile. And it, and it does. It buries her almost every day. But she's got this kind of joy in her life that's inexplicable. And she was the one who gave me that line. She said to me, George, I have been given everything I need to be God's person right where I am right now. And that's, that's true for you. I love the way Dallas Willard paraphrases the teaching of Jesus at this point when he's talking about the kingdom. In Mark 1, 1 where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, here's how Dallas Willard paraphrases this. He says, Jesus then came into Galilee announcing the good news from God. Quote, all the preliminaries have been taken care of. And the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. A new era. A new alternative universe. Someone after the first service said, it reminded me of that time I dropped acid. And it's like the whole room moved and there was this other room. And I go, you got it. That's it. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about an alternative reality that's being superimposed on this reality. It's a kingdom that has personal, political, social, economic, cultural implications. It is heaven on earth, and it's here right now. And Jesus is saying, it's right in front of you. <laughs> Just take that step. Your next step can be a step into the kingdom, to the rule and reign of God. And that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. You've got grace in your pocket. You've got grace in your pocket. And Jesus is saying to you, do business with it until I return. Put it to use. Put it into action. So let me circle back to the original question. How can Jesus make me bold? Here's the takeaway for this morning. Put your hands in your pockets and pull out God's grace. Put your hands in your pockets and pull out God's grace. Token of the new kingdom. The central question, if you want to do that, is this. In every situation, whether you've just gotten in a car accident, like I got into a few weeks ago, except that I was on a bicycle, and at fault, oh my gosh, I'm that guy in Seattle. <laughs> Don't you hate Seattle bicyclists? I do too. And then I realized I'm that guy. So I'm in a situation, and you know, I don't know what your situation is. You, you know, uh, just had a miscarriage, or um, man, uh, I've got an ethical situation at work, and I don't know how to handle it. Whatever it is, the question you want to ask is, who is Jesus in this situation? Who is he? Who is he? It's a question about the king. This story is making you puzzled about the king because the, 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 the crux of this whole thing is actually not the coins. It's actually what Jesus has to say to the other guy. Uh, because when when the Jesus shows up, or when, the, when it's not the Jesus, the nobleman, the new king shows up, the um, the other guy, the third guy, verse twenty one says, "I was afraid of you." See, it's his fear, it's fear that screws it up for him. I was afraid of you. 
I didn't want to take a risk, which turns out to be the worst possible thing you could do, to be risk averse with Jesus, and to not know who he is. Because you're a harsh man, and you take what you deposit, uh, did not deposit, and reap what you do not sow. So the point of Jesus, and then Jesus goes, and then the nobleman says, well, you know, the, 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 the very words that you use to me are going to be the words by which you would be judged, which is Jesus' way of saying, uh, the God that you think you have is the God that will determine your future. Theology always precedes destiny. There's no way around it. And so the key question is, who is your God? Do you let Jesus answer that question for you? Or will you invent something out of your fears? Because if you have a God who is always angry with you or always disappointed with you, you'll never be able to trust him with your life. If you have a God whose only goal is to give you a ticket to heaven, then you'll never be able to trust him with the way things work on earth. If you have a God who's got a stained glass voice and only interested in religious things, you'll never be able to trust him with your work, your family. If you have a God who only exists to meet your needs and make you feel better about yourself, then you'll never have the capacity to trust this God to secure you when you take a risk to care for the poor. But if you have a God like Jesus, you can be bold. You can be bold. This week I was meeting with a young friend of mine who told me about a little bit of a crisis in his life, and I was so proud of how he responded. I wanted to share it with you. He said, I, I was taking an exam, and I came across a word that was central to the exam, and I couldn't quite place it. I couldn't figure out what the word was. So I did the unthinkable. I raised my hand. And I told the professor I needed to use the restroom. I walked out of the room, and I pulled my phone out of my pocket, and I looked up that word. And as soon as I saw it, I realized, oh, I know that word. But I also realized I just cheated on a college exam. It was like the worst day of his life. Went home that night, laid in bed, couldn't sleep. Felt there's this crushing weight on his chest. And I was just thinking, what should I do? What can I do? And then he remembers hearing a voice, and he attributes it to God, saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me with this? And he said, oh, I did. So the next morning, I went back to that professor, and I acknowledged it. I knew I could get thrown out, but I confessed it. And amazingly, the professor forgave me for it and let me go. This is the question in every situation you get in. If you feel like God is telling you to give more than anybody else has ever given... The question is, do you trust me? If you feel like God is telling you to withhold sex until you find yourself in marriage, even though everybody else is sleeping around, the question is, do you trust me? If you feel like God is telling you to go back into that relationship and reconcile with that person that everybody else in the world would tell you, just leave the relationship. for. The question is, from Jesus, do you trust me? Because if you think Jesus is trying to trap you or make you miserable, then that's going to shape your future. The fact is, this parable tells us Jesus is trying to resource you. He's trying to grace you, to gift you. So anyways, if you go to Seattle Town Hall tomorrow, you'll hear a great lecture, I'm sure, about terror management theory. But I want to tell you today, Jesus offers you something even better. He offers you not a way to manage your fear of death, but the end of death. He takes it away. Now there's one more king I need to tell you about before we close. Many of you are going to read the end of this parable in your small group this week, and I want you to know you're not going to like the way this story ends because this king 
is, is very harsh with his enemies. And you'll have to ask yourself, do I think Jesus is that way? There's one other, other king. It's actually the king that would be most recent in the telling of this story among the three. Uh, his name is Archelaus. Archelaus also went to Rome to receive a kingdom. And as he did, a delegation of Jews and Samaritans followed him in order to try to convince Augustus not to let him be a king because Archelaus had just gotten into a dispute on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and he had killed 3,000 Jews. He was vicious. And the question Jesus is putting before his readers is, do you think that's me? Do you think that's your God? The irony is that as Jesus and his followers move from Jericho to Jerusalem, they have to pass by the temple of Archelaus. It's undoubtedly that uh, palace that provokes this story. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem, is going to the Temple Mount, and there will be death. But the death will not be his enemies. The death will be his own, his own death given for the life of his enemies. That's our king. So here's your takeaway this week. Put your hands in your pockets and pull out God's grace. As I close, would you just take your hands right now and put them in your pockets? If you don't have pockets, put them into the pockets of the person next to you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what do you have in there? You got keys, you got a phone, you got a little bit of your life. It's in there. And uh, I want you to keep your hands in your pockets while you hear this final um, quote from Robert Farrar Capon. Reflecting on the story, just as the nobleman was present to his servants in and through the coins, even in his apparent absence from them, so Jesus is present to us now, and he calls us to faith in him now. Jesus, our death, is with us now. Jesus, our resurrection, is with us now. And Jesus, our vindicating judge, is with us now. If only now we will believe not think, because all we ever think of on our own is the god-awful God we've made in the image of our worst fears. Not rationalize, because drawing logical conclusions from our habitual dreadful premises will only make us more fearful still. And not reason, and not speculate, and not theologize. Just trust. Just yes, Jesus. Thank you. Let's pray. Yes, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117